Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 98 of the show. It is the Thanksgiving episode. We have a lot to get into, another good episode for you. Have a couple of golf tournaments to recap. Uh, We've made it to week 12 in the NFL season, which is Thanksgiving week, so we'll take a look at the standings, preview this week's games. College football, we'll talk about the playoff rankings that uh, have been released, the newest edition, and uh, there's quite a few changes after last weekend's games. Then, of course, we'll do a standings update in the NHL and the NBA. The Around the Island segment, uh, as usual, lots of information this week, particularly in Major League Baseball. So we'll get you caught up on all of that. We're going to start off on the PGA Tour, and we'll take it back two weekends ago. All right, We haven't had an episode in a couple of weeks, so we do have quite a bit to get into uh, for the entire podcast. But we'll uh, back it up a couple of weeks on the PGA Tour. A couple weekends ago was the Cadence Bank Houston Open. That was at the Memorial Park Golf Course in Houston, Texas. It was a par 70. Distance was 7,412 yards. Okay, when we previewed this uh, tournament a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this course. It was a municipal course. It's been around for over 100 years. PGA Tour originally played here back when it opened, but there was about a 60-year gap uh, in the PGA Tour's play here at this course. It's underwent... A lot of renovations. I've uh, had some holes that were lengthened, some holes that were shortened. A lot of trees removed, uh, short grass runoffs, and strategic bunkers, all of which you see in a standard municipal course uh, that you would play uh, on any given day. All right. Uh, greens for this thing also, they were uniquely contoured. All right. So we talked about that. The field was pretty solid. Several of the top-ranked players in the world were out there for the Cadence Bank Houston Open, including Texas native Scotty Scheffler, and you also had Hideki Matsuyama, Sam Burns, Tony Finau, Justin Rose, Gary Woodland, Jason Day, just to name a few. Uh, but this tournament, uh, you know, dis- despite having a few big-name players, it just simply was not that competitive, okay? Uh, Tony Finau was your winner with a score of 16 under par. All right, and he came out in round one, shot five under 65, then really opened this thing up with an eight under 62 on Friday and was the leader from that point on. Uh, Saturday shot a two under 68, and then Sunday, going into Sunday's final round, Finau had a five-shot lead, so all he needed to do was basically play par golf, and uh, he was good to go, and he did. He actually shot one under 69 on Sunday, to get to 16 under and capture his fifth career victory on tour. Okay, this was actually Tony Finau's third victory in his last seven starts. All right, so he's 
been playing some really good golf. Of course, this dates back to uh, the end of the PGA Tour's regular season from this past year, where he'd won two events in a row. So three out of his last seven. He did so, he won this tournament by playing some very well-rounded golf there in Houston. His statistical rankings from the tournament, he was first in greens in regulation, first in fairways in regulation, second in strokes gained putting, second in strokes gained off the tee, and fourth in strokes gained tee to green. So very well-rounded game, allowed Finau to capture a four-shot victory over Tyson Alexander, who was at 12 under par. All right, Ben Taylor was at 11 under par, solo third. Then we had a a three-way tie for fourth at eight under par, which was eight shots back of Finau. That was Trey Mullinax, Alex Smalley, and Alex Norin. Okay, so those three were tied for fourth. Two guys tied for seventh at seven under par, Adam Hadwin and Aaron Rye. And then a whole gaggle of, of golfers there at six under par, which was tied for ninth. Okay, it was Scotty Scheffler, Stephen Yeager, Keith Mitchell, Joe Bramlett, Joel Damon, and Gary Woodland, uh, also Justin Rose. Okay, so there's some big names there in that group of six under. They finished tied for ninth, uh, 10 shots back of Tony Fina. That just tells you the level of golf that Tony Fina was playing. Like I said, this tournament really wasn't that close, all right? Um, Finau had this thing wrapped up uh, pretty much after Saturday, uh, you know, with that five-shot lead. So Finau was your winner there in Houston, all right? Um, you know, again, fairly good golf tournament, just not as competitive as you would have hoped, uh, just given the the number of, of decent name, uh, decent name players that were out there, all right? Um, but that brings us to last weekend's tournament, which was the RSM Classic, all right? It was at the Sea Island Golf Club, which uh, has two courses. They played the Seaside course. That's in St. Simons Island, Georgia. It was a par 70. Distance was 7,060 yards, so about 400 yards shorter than Memorial Park there in Houston, all right? And uh, this RSM Classic the Sea Island Golf Club, the course was built in 1928, but an interesting fact about that is that it was redesigned by Davis Love III, who's a golfer, uh, still plays every once in a while, and his brother Mark Love uh, back in 2019. So recently redesigned, it was a classic design link style course, all right? So it's very undulating. It's adjacent to the ocean, right? Right on the ocean, seaside course, right? Sea Island. So you know there's a lot of water. Had a decent amount of bunkers. The wind and the weather was a factor. Uh, the first couple days, it was kind of chilly, cooler temperatures, pretty breezy, a uh, lot of wind going on, but uh, they fought through it. The field for this was uh, fairly average, okay? Only four of the top 40 ranked golfers in the official world golf rankings were out there. Some of the names that you would recognize, Brian Harmon, Sepp Straka, Tom Hoagie, Kevin Kistner, and current FedEx Cup points leader, at least going into this tournament, Seamus Power, he was out there. Some other recognizable names were Sahith Thigala, Justin Rose, Zach Johnson, and Jason Day. Okay, Four of the last six editions of this RSM Classic have gone into a playoff, including uh, three in a row from 2018 to 2020. All right now, 
We did not see a playoff hole this year, but I should also note that Sea Island Golf Club has been a haven for first-time winners on tour recently, and uh, we had plenty of eligible candidates for that again this year. And when it was all said and done, Adam Svensson, the Canadian, Adam Svensson was your winner with a score of 19 under par. All right, now, he actually did so uh, by shooting three over 73 on Thursday's opening round. Then he just turned it on. He went six under 64 on Friday, eight under 62 on Saturday, which got him up near the top, and then shot another six under 64 on Sunday to capture uh, his first career victory on tour. And if you remember, I just mentioned that Sea Island was a breeding ground for first-time winners. Well, this was Adam Svensson's first career PGA Tour victory in just his 70th career start on tour. So uh, Svensson was at 19 under. He actually had a two-shot victory over uh, three guys who were tied for second at 17 under par. That was Callum Terran, Brian Harmon, and Sahith Thigala. All right, a couple of names I just mentioned that you would recognize. Uh, they finished near the top. A total of five golfers were tied for fifth at 15 under par, and that was Joel Damon, Cole Hammer, Chris Stroud, Seamus Power, and Alex Smalley. All right, so Smalley played well in Houston, and he played well again here uh, at Sea Island. All right, and, um, you know, there's a few of the, the decent, you know, bigger name players that we mentioned are up there. This tournament was fairly competitive. Uh, I don't remember if Svensson was the 54-hole leader or not. Uh, he certainly was up there after that 8-under round on Saturday, but this thing actually came down to the final few holes. It looked like uh, you know, Brian Harmon or Callum Terran may end up uh, catching him, but Svensson was your winner. Uh, pretty I would say, all in all, the RSM Classic was certainly more competitive from a viewing standpoint than the Cadence Bank Houston Open was. But uh, nonetheless, two good golf tournaments. Now, we do not have an event to preview, all right, uh, because there is no event for several weeks, okay? The RSM Classic was the last official PGA Tour event on the calendar until the Century Tournament of Champions, which uh, takes place uh, the first week of January. So uh, we do not have a tournament to preview. So uh, as we get uh, closer to the episode before the Century Tournament of Champions tees off, we will do a preview of that. But uh, until then, that is the extent of the PGA Tour coverage for now. They give it a little break in the schedule for Thanksgiving and the holidays, and uh, we'll be back uh, in some PGA Tour action uh, before we know it. But we'll move over to the National Football League and do a standings update here in the NFL. We have made it through 11 weeks of the NFL season, and we are arriving at week 12, which, of course, is Thanksgiving week. It's always a very special week in the NFL. We have three games on Thursday instead of the regular one Thursday night football game. There will be football on all day on Thursday, three games. We'll talk about those here in a little bit. But a couple of storylines from week 11. Now, we didn't 
have an episode last week, so it's been a couple of weeks since we've seen these NFL standings. Uh, Weeks 10 and 11 have been played since our last standings update. But a storyline from week 11, the Cleveland Browns and the Buffalo Bills. That game was supposed to be in Buffalo, but due to the massive winter storm that they had that planted over 70 inches of snow on the ground, uh, the NFL uh, decided to be ahead of the game, and they relocated the game to Ford Field in Detroit, which is where the Detroit Lions play. The NFL did that several days in advance of the storm. Uh, but if, if you saw on, on social media, uh, several Bills players recorded their neighbors helping them clear their driveways, uh, get their vehicles out because the snow was so high. And uh, that was a pretty cool thing. Um, and you saw pictures of the Bills stadium, just how much snow actually fell. Snow games are always fun, but uh, in this particular case, I don't know how much of the game would have actually been played uh, just because of the sheer amount of snow. So the NFL, as much as we like snow games, the NFL did make the right decision on this one. So that game was in Detroit, which interesting fact for Buffalo is that they played week 10 in, uh, or week 11 in Detroit against the Browns, and then they're staying in Detroit for their Week 12 game against the Lions, who they play on Thanksgiving. So the Bills actually play two consecutive games at Ford Field. They set up shop in the visitors' locker room uh, against the Browns when they were supposed to be the home team so that they could keep their stuff in there uh, all week for this week's game against the Lions. So uh, pretty neat stuff there. And then Monday Night Football this past week, Week 11, was played at Estadio Azteca in Mexico City. Right, It was the 49ers and the Cardinals that played that game. I think this was the second or third time the NFL has played in Mexico City fairly recently. But this was the 45th regular season NFL game that has been played outside the United States since 2005. Now, they've already played two games in London this year, maybe three. Uh, One game in Munich, Germany, and now one game in Mexico City. So the NFL is certainly trying to globalize the brand even more than it already is. Uh, But that was uh, pretty cool. The fans there were pretty loud, uh, pretty rowdy all game. Uh, But that was some highlights from week 11. We'll go into our standings update here. We're starting off in the AFC. Uh, The AFC East... The Miami Dolphins at 7-3, and three, along with the Buffalo Bills. Now, Miami was on a bye this past week. Buffalo, of course, played. They beat Cleveland, so they're 7-3 and three as well. Now, the Bills, you know, probably shouldn't have lost to the Vikings, so the Bills probably should be 8-2 and two, uh, at the very least. Uh, but the Dolphins are right there. Uh, Tua Tagovailoa, that offense in, in Miami, is certainly one of the better ones in the league. And it's not one you want to face. Uh, this division could come down to the last week, uh, frankly, because the New England Patriots and the New York Jets are both six and four. Patriots played the Jets here in week 11 for the second time in three weeks and beat them both times. So both of those teams are six and four. Uh, statistically, uh, because of the head to head, the Patriots are actually third in the AFC East and the Jets are fourth as it sits right now. So interesting turn of events there. You know, the Jets have looked like a playoff team so far, uh, but their offense, they averaged 2.7 inches per play in the second half. I mean, I'm not kidding. 2.7 inches per play. 
that is just horrendous. They're talking about a quarterback change, possibly going back to Joe Flacco instead of Zach Wilson. Uh, either way, the Jets, their defense is terrific. One of the better defenses in the league, but that offense is one of the worst in the league. They have failed to score 200 points through 10 games, okay, which uh, is is not great. So especially not for a perennial or projected playoff team, rather. Uh, over in the AFC North, the Baltimore Ravens, they didn't play real well against Carolina this week, but they got the job done and won, so they're 7-3. and three. I mentioned uh, on the last episode a couple of weeks ago that the Ravens have entered the chat uh, for one of the best teams in the AFC. Certainly with their next few games, they look very, very winnable on paper. Uh, it's very possible that here in a few weeks we're talking about the 10-3 and Baltimore Ravens. But uh, either way, the Ravens uh, are definitely one of the best teams in the AFC. And with that offense, with Lamar Jackson, you know, they don't have a whole lot of prolific weapons, so to speak, like Miami or Kansas City. But uh, they just get the job done, and that defense is is pretty rugged as well. So Baltimore's up top there. Cincinnati's second in that division at six and four. All right, they uh, they beat Pittsburgh this past week, so they're up to six and four. Pretty good. They started zero and two. All right, they're six and two in their last eight games. Okay, so they've turned it around. They look like they'll probably be in the playoffs there in that AFC, but. Uh, Jamar Chase should be coming back. I don't think it's going to be week 12 this week. I think we're looking at week 13 for a Jamar Chase return, but him coming back healthy into that lineup certainly will boost them. Then the Cleveland Browns and the Pittsburgh Steelers both sitting at 3-7. and seven. Now, the Browns are going to get Deshaun Watson back here in, uh, uh, I think, two weeks. Week 13 is when he's projected to come back, if I'm not mistaken. So Watson will be back. That ought to help. The, the Cleveland offense, um, and due to that, I think they'll probably finish ahead of Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh just, uh, they they are, are heading for a top-five pick, and they're getting there in a hurry. So Pittsburgh's 3-7. and seven. Probably the, this will be the first year that Mike Tomlin's missed uh, the playoffs since he's been the coach, or f- finished with a record lower than 500 since he's been the coach of the Steelers uh, all 16 years. AFC South, Tennessee Titans, they had a big Thursday night football win at Lambeau against Green Bay this past week. They're up to 7-3. and three. In that Thursday night game, Derrick Henry became the fifth player in NFL history to score 10 rushing touchdowns in five consecutive seasons. So he currently leads the NFL in rushing yards. Uh, the guy's just an absolute monster, and the Titans go as Derrick Henry goes. All right, Tannehill. Uh, is back playing quarterback, which certainly helps. And then it helps that they play in a division that's just straight trash. Okay, the Indianapolis Colts are second at 4-6-1, and one, two and a half games back. The Titans, uh, the Colts did win Jeff Saturday's coaching debut in Week 10 against Vegas, but uh, they ended up losing on a heartbreaker last-second touchdown against Philadelphia. They had the Eagles on the ropes all game. Phil, uh, Indy was actually winning the entire game with the exception of the last, you know, 20 seconds when uh, Philly scored to take the lead. But Colts, yeah, I just I don't see anything happening there. Jacksonville Jaguars are 3-7. and seven. You know, they're not making the play. They looked, uh, you know, they won two of their first three games and have done nothing but um, 
fall apart since then. And then the Houston Texans are 1-8-1. Uh, they are very likely going to be uh, the holder of the number one overall draft pick. Over in the AFC West, the Kansas City Chiefs, they continue to win another solid performance on Sunday night football. Chiefs have won four games in a row. They're 8-2, and two, and uh, that offense does not look like it can be stopped. They beat the L.A. Chargers on Sunday Night Football, who are division rivals. Chargers are 5-5, five and five, sitting at second in that division. They're three games behind the Chiefs. They're not catching the Chiefs to win the division, uh, but it is possible. The, the, the Chargers are still uh, solidly in the playoff mix for a wild card spot, uh, but they are falling behind uh, after losing to the Chiefs. Third place, Las Vegas Raiders at 3-7, and seven, and the Denver Broncos also at 3-7. and seven. Okay, Denver, after getting that big win in London against Jacksonville, they've now proceeded to lose two games in a row, and uh, it's back to the old Denver Bronco ways. They have only scored 147 points this year, which is the lowest in the entire NFL. So, they brought Russell Wilson over there to fix the offense, and he has done absolutely the opposite. Uh, the Broncos certainly could be 3-7 and seven with 147 points scored through 10 games if they had Drew Locke as their starting quarterback. So a uh, lot of stuff going on there in Denver. Uh, Nathaniel Hackett might be a one-and-done coach uh, at this rate, but that's how the AFC looks. Over in the NFC, the NFC East, the Philadelphia Eagles are 9-1. and one. Uh, they got lucky this past week, scoring a late touchdown on a Jalen Hurts keeper, and uh, they almost lost to Indy, but uh, they, they did lose their first game in week uh, 10 to the Washington Commanders, so that's something that uh, has happened since the last episode. Eagles are no longer undefeated. They should be 8-2, and two, but they are 9-1. and one. Uh, Second place, well, let me back up with Philly. Uh, you know, their, their team is pretty loaded. They did sign a pair of veteran defensive tackles in Linville Joseph and Dominican Sue. Both got one-year deals to finish out this year. They're both way past their prime. Not sure how much help either one is going to be, especially Linville Joseph. Um, he's he's uh, he's not been relevant for a while. He's made a few Pro Bowls. Same with Dominican Sue. He's a little more recent, playing at a higher level than Linville Joseph, but uh, both of them are. Veterans who I think are just, you know, filling a hole in the lineup. Uh, my Dallas Cowboys are second in the NFC East at 7-3. and three, Had a massive win against Minnesota uh, on Sunday. 40-3 to three was the largest margin of victory in Dallas Cowboys history. So I'm not sure you can play a perfect game in the NFL, but the Cowboys' performance on Sunday was as close to perfect as you get. They have exquisitely figured out how to use Tony Pollard and Zeke Elliott, both in the in the, in the backfield. And uh, Dak Prescott was 22 of 25 passing. So if, if you know Dak can be efficient like that and the ground game can, can run like it is, the Cowboys are going to be up there in terms of Super Bowl contenders when it's all said and done. The New York Giants are also 7-3. All right, they were 7-1, 7-2. Uh, 
you know, to start the year. They just lost this past week. Again, I, I've been saying this all along. I think the Giants' record is probably the most fluky 7-3 and three I've ever seen. They just lost rookie wide receiver Wandale Robinson to a torn ACL. He had 100 yards uh, in their game against Detroit this past week. They got absolutely pummeled by the Lions, the Giants did, and uh, at home. And then they lose their, their top wide receiver for the rest of the year. So it's going in the wrong direction for the Giants. Uh, as it sits now, they're, they're certainly in the wild card for a playoff spot. But I don't know how much longer they can hold on, especially with the Washington Commanders charging hard like they are. They're up to 6-5. and five. They may be fourth in the NFC East, but uh, they have a better record than the entire NFC South division. And, uh, you know, they're right there in the wild card mix if they can string a few wins together. Their schedule coming up is also very friendly. So I would not be shocked. I'm going to say, you know, the Commanders have won two in a row uh, with their schedule. I'm going to say that the Commanders overtake the Giants by the end of the season. I know they're only a, a a game behind them, but they've played one more game than the Giants. But I'm going to say the Commanders get in to the playoffs over the Giants just based on their schedule and uh, just how they've been playing recently. But we'll have to see on that. The NFC North, Minnesota Vikings are 8-2. and two. They were 8-1 and one and then just got absolutely pummeled at home by the Cowboys. Now, I did fail to mention this was the third year in a row that Dallas has played in Minnesota during the regular season, and the Cowboys have won all three of those games the past three years. So I don't know what it is, something about uh, that purple or playing in Minnesota, but Cowboys do really well in Minnesota. I, I still think the Vikings are a good team, and they have a four-game lead in their division. So they're certainly going to win the NFC North, barring an absolute epic collapse. But uh, the offense is really good. Defense just needs to tighten up there in Minnesota, and they will be a strong contender. Second place in the NFC North. If you would have told me this four weeks ago, I would have said you're nuts. But the Detroit Lions, the Detroit Lions are four and six. They are second in the NFC North. Okay, They have won three games in a row for the first time since, I think, twenty either 2017 or 2019. So... They're playing really well. Big piece of their offense is Amon Ross St. Brown, wide receiver. Uh, in week 10, he became one of 11 players in NFL history to record 135 catches in their first 25 career games. The dude is a target hog. He just absolutely catches everything thrown to him. And, uh, you know, he is a terrific young wide receiver there. The Lions have figured out how to use DeAndre Swift and Jamal Williams. Jamal Williams currently leads the NFL in rushing with 12 touchdowns. So Lions are playing some really good football at the moment. They're not going to make the playoffs just because they started out 1-6. and six. Um, I, I'd be hard-pressed to see them making it. They are four games back of Minnesota in their division, uh, and they are a couple games behind the last-place wildcard team. So I wouldn't say it's impossible but uh, I just wouldn't anticipate the Lions making the playoff. But they are four and six, second in the division, ahead of the Green Bay Packers, who are third at four and seven. Uh, they were coming off a high on Sunday in Week Ten, beating the Cowboys, and then uh, lost at home to the Tennessee Titans on Thursday Night Football. And then the Chicago Bears, they're fourth in the NFC North. They're three and eight. All right, they've lost four games in a row. Uh, but none of them have been the fault of Justin Fields. That guy continues to just amaze me. 
Uh, he's been a much better passer over the last month and a half. He added another 150 rushing yards on the ground in Week 10, becoming the first quarterback since 1950 with 300-plus rushing yards in a two-game span. He's breaking rushing records by quarterback set by Michael Vick, and he added another 80-something yards and a touchdown on the ground here in Week 11. Uh, the dude, he's going to end up with over 1,000 yards rushing probably uh, and damn near double-digit rushing touchdowns. Um, the guy is just incredible. Uh, he's caught a lot of flack his first year and a half, but the Bears have finally figured out how to use him. And all the, if they can just get some weapons around him other than Darnell Mooney uh, and Chase Claypool, I think Fields is going to be a very, very good quarterback for years to come. Over in the NFC South, I'm not going to spend a lot of time. This division is hot trash. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers are in first place at 5-5. Five and five. That's all you need to know about the NFC South. The Atlanta Falcons won here in Week 11 over the Chicago Bears, so they're up to 5-6. and six. In that game, Cordero Patterson returned a kickoff for a touchdown. It was his ninth career kickoff return for a touchdown, which is the most kickoff return touchdowns in NFL history. So, of course, Devin Hester was the most prolific kick returner, punt returner. He has the record for the most special teams return touchdowns, but Cordero Patterson has the NFL record for most career kickoff return touchdowns. Don't write the Falcons off. I don't see how they make the playoffs, but they're playing in an absolutely putrid division. Uh, They have a very legitimate chance to win at this rate. So keep an eye on Atlanta as a possible division winner there. Who the hell would have thought that back in the beginning of the season? Uh, the New Orleans Saints, they had a big win over the Rams in Week 11. They're up to 4-7 and seven. again. Uh, I think their only hope to make the playoffs is to win their division, and they're only a game out of that. So that's certainly feasible as well. Uh, Andy Dalton, he's still hanging on to the starting job, even though Jameis Winston's healthy. So uh, we'll, we'll see how long that lasts. But the Saints, uh, they're 4-7. and seven. And then the Carolina Panthers are 3-8. and eight. They're going to be up there with Houston, uh, certainly a top-five selection in the draft. They can't figure out the quarterback position, and uh, they absolutely have zero offensive playmakers. Over in the NFC West, the San Francisco 49ers. They're up to 6-4 and four with their Monday night football win over Arizona, and that team is humming right now. Uh, they have won three games in a row, all three since acquiring uh, Christian McCaffrey. He is completely... Uh, I don't want to say change the dynamic of that offense, but they've always been a run-first team. Uh, but McCaffrey gives them a, an elite rushing and receiving option out of the backfield, very similarly to how Debo Samuel gives them an elite rushing uh, ability out of the slot or the wide receiver position. You know, they, that team is loaded with weapons. You know, Christian McCaffrey, Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk has, has been turning it on. He's been lighting it up. And then George Kittle has four touchdowns in his last uh, four games, I think. So um, he's, you know, that offense, Jimmy G is not flashy, but he's consistent and he knows how to operate his offense. And Kyle Shanahan as the head coach, that team is probably one of the best three teams in the NFC behind Dallas and Philadelphia. And I would argue, given a one-game 
winner-take-all playoff game, I'm not so sure that San Francisco doesn't beat either one of those teams, all right? So keep an eye on the Niners, man. They look really good. Uh, Seattle Seahawks, they're 6-4, and four, all right? They're tied with San Francisco for the division lead, you know, but I, I, if I'm putting my money, uh, I think uh, ESPN's uh, FPI projects San Francisco to win the division uh, with 85% confidence. So, you know, I, I don't see how Seattle finishes ahead of San Francisco at this rate, but, you know, anything's possible, I suppose, especially we didn't expect Seattle to even be in the conversation this year, and they are. So, uh, Arizona Cardinals, four and seven after losing on Monday Night Football. They haven't had Kyler Murray the last couple of games, and uh, not only did they not have him, Zach Ertz in Week Ten, he injured his knee. Uh, he's out for the year with the knee injury. He's already had surgery on it. And then the Los Angeles Rams, three and seven. That is just absolutely horrendous, and uh, they are not making the playoffs. All right, Cooper Cup was uh, he hurt him his ankle in Week Ten high ankle sprain they put him on injured reserve he had surgery on an ankle sprain so that should tell you how severe it is they've listed him as six to eight weeks uh, in terms of absence there's only seven weeks left in the regular season so with the Rams not making the playoffs at three and seven through ten games I don't see why Cooper Cup would come back this year um the Rams were playing like shit before Cup got hurt, so that's not really an excuse as to why they lost this past week uh, to New Orleans. But, uh, you know, the Rams, after winning the Super Bowl, they are uh, a complete shell of themselves. But um, this weekend, like I mentioned, Week 12, just preview the Thanksgiving Day games. That's that's what most of us care about here in Week 12. There's three of them, and it starts at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time, on Thursday, Thanksgiving Day, uh, the Buffalo Bills are at the Detroit Lions, right? Second consecutive game in Detroit for Buffalo, as I mentioned. Lions have three straight wins. This game a few weeks ago looked like it was going to be a joke, uh, but now it looks like it might be a legitimate game. And uh, that game's at 12.30 p.m. Eastern on CBS. The midday game is the New York Giants traveling down here to play my Dallas Cowboys, that game is at uh, 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 3.30 here Central. That game's on Fox. Now, uh, this is a big game for the Giants, right? I, I mentioned they've, they're dealing with some injuries. Uh, they haven't played real well the last couple of weeks. And the Cowboys are coming off a record-setting performance uh, in franchise history. So uh, Cowboys need this one. Hopefully they can uh, come out sharp and uh, take care of the Giants. They usually have... A little bit of trouble with these Thanksgiving games the Cowboys do. So, um, you know, I'm just I'm hoping for the best with this one to get the Cowboys up to eight and three. And then the nightcap is the New England Patriots traveling to Minneapolis to take on the Minnesota Vikings. That game is at 820 Eastern on NBC. So all of the major networks, uh, the three major ones, each have a game. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what we look forward to in Week 12 is a Thanksgiving game. And, um, you know, I, I'm sure, like all of you, will be uh, stuffing my face with food on Thanksgiving, watching uh, NFL football all day long. So we will check back in uh, next week and see how Week 12 turned out.
But we'll move on to college football and uh, do some college football playoff rankings. These are the Week 12 rankings. I think uh, the last episode we did, it was the Week 10 rankings, which was the uh, second week that they had done the rankings. So uh, it's been a couple weeks. They've changed quite a bit. And uh, we had some good games this past weekend, and a lot of the top teams kind of struggled in their games. We'll start, uh, of course, the college football playoff is only the top four teams uh, at the final rankings. So when the final rankings come out, the top four teams are the teams that get into the college football playoff with one playing four and two playing three. Okay, so uh, we'll start the rankings off with the number one team in the country. That is the Georgia Bulldogs. Okay, they are 11-0. and and they have already clinched a spot in the SEC championship game in Atlanta. Uh, so they're solidly at number one. The number two team in the country right now is the Ohio State Buckeyes. They're also 11-0. and uh, They had a little bit of trouble with Maryland this past week. They were only up by three points with about four minutes to go. Got a late pick six, which gave them... Uh, a little bit better, a uh, more aesthetically pleasing final score than what it probably should have been. But uh, nonetheless, Ohio State, certainly the eye test would tell you that they are uh, a playoff team. However, uh, the number three team in the country is the Michigan Wolverines. They're also 11-0. and uh, They struggled mightily against Illinois this past week. In fact, Michigan needed a last-second field goal to beat Illinois this week. So uh, that game was uh, in Ann Arbor, too. It was a home game for Michigan, and they almost lost to Illinois. So none of neither of those teams looked particularly good, um, and it just so happens that uh, those two teams play each other this weekend, and that game is in Columbus, Ohio. So I'll talk about that more here in a minute. Number four team in the country, TCU Horn Frogs. They are 11 and 0. They needed a miracle uh, win last week in Baylor. They were on the road in Waco, uh, trailed pretty much the whole game, and uh, they also kicked a last-second field goal. Kind of a little bit of drama there. They ran the ball with 22 seconds left and no timeouts. Got an extra three yards out of it. Field goal team ran on at the last, you know, last second they could set up shop real quick, and uh, the kicker made the field goal as time was expiring. So dramatic win for TCU, but nonetheless, they are uh, they're going to be in the Big 12 championship game. We don't know their opponent just yet, uh, but they're currently four. The first team out of the playoffs is the number five LSU Tigers, all right? LSU's nine and two, all right? They've, they've beaten Ole Miss, and they've beaten Alabama. Those are their two key wins. Uh, the Tigers are in the SEC championship as the SEC West representative. So the SEC championship will be LSU versus Georgia. So I'll I'll talk about some scenarios here in a second. But LSU sitting at five is very interesting at the moment. Number six is USC, uh, Southern California. Trojans had a big win over UCLA this week uh, on the road to move up to 10-1. and That offense looks potent. Caleb Williams, quarterback, might just win the Heisman this year. Um, so USC, uh, I I think they're sitting pretty right now with where they're at. They have clinched a spot in the Pac-12 championship game. 
Their opponent is TBD at the moment. Number seven is Alabama. They're nine and two. They do not have a chance to get into the playoffs. Not sure uh, why they're ranked as high as they are, but uh, they're not playing in the SEC championship, and they already have two losses. So uh, you can eliminate Alabama from the playoffs. Number eight is Clemson. They're ten and one, and they, um, you know, they're they're hanging around. They they don't look overly impressive, but. Uh, I'm surprised, truthfully, I'm surprised that they're behind Alabama. Uh, I would have figured they would have been number seven just because they have one less loss. But uh, they had an ugly loss to Notre Dame a couple of weeks ago, and that has seemingly cost them ever since. Uh, But Clemson is still potentially in the playoff mix. There's a lot of stuff that has to happen for Clemson to get in, but uh, they're still hanging around. Number nine is Oregon. Uh, The Ducks are nine and two. Uh, they just lost uh, to Washington last week, so uh, they are eliminated from the playoffs. Uh, I think the only way they get in is if they make it to the Pac-12 championship game, win it, and somebody else along the way ends up with a loss or two in front of them. Um, it's not impossible. It's just highly unlikely for Oregon uh, sitting there at number nine. And then number 10 is Tennessee. They ended up sliding all the way to 10. They just got absolutely pummeled by South Carolina on Saturday. And to make matters worse, their uh, Heisman potential quarterback, Hendon Hooker, he tore his ACL on his left knee, so he's out for the year. Uh, that's a huge blow. Uh, that loss pretty much eliminated Tennessee after already having lost to Georgia. So uh, Tennessee is out of contention, and that's where we'll stop the rankings updates. Now, the scenario part of this, it gets very interesting when you start digging into it. Uh, Georgia, they're in the SEC championship game. Uh, there's there's a high probable, uh, high probability, rather, that, that they're going to win the SEC. So if, if Georgia wins the SEC, uh, they'll be the top overall seed. Uh, they'll finish the rankings at number one. So it's it's looking pretty good. Even if Georgia were to lose uh, somehow their last game before the conference championship, uh, I still think they would probably be in the playoffs if they won the SEC championship. Now, Ohio State and Michigan, that game is this weekend, okay? And whoever wins that wins the Big Ten East. The Big Ten West representative is probably going to be either uh, Iowa or Purdue, neither of which are going to beat uh, Ohio State for sure. Uh, they may give Michigan a run for their money. I know Michigan is uh, has been playing really well. Blake Corum, their, their uh, star running back, he got hurt. He hurt his knee last week, so we'll see what his availability is. Certainly won't be 100%. We know that. But if Ohio State beats Michigan, uh, they're in the playoffs uh, because they're not losing the Big Ten championship game to whoever they play. So Ohio State will be in if they beat Michigan. Uh, if Michigan loses, they're all but out. They have the second-to-last uh, schedule in terms of uh, strength of schedule for non-conference opponents. So second second worst in the entire FBS in their non-conference schedule. So uh, they are they don't have any signature wins and uh, not not like Ohio State and the other teams around them do. So if Michigan loses, uh, they're out. Uh, they're not playing in the Big Ten Championship. 
they're out. Uh, you you can write them off. TCU gets interesting. Uh, their their last game, you know, of the season before they they play at the Big Twelve Championship. They, TCU basically needs to win out. Uh, the, I think the committee has been trying to find a reason to not include TCU because if we're being honest, if if TCU played Georgia tomorrow, uh, who's winning that game? It's it's Georgia, and it's probably not particularly close. All right, so. I think the committee's been trying to find a reason to eliminate TCU, but TCU is playing in the Big 12 championship. Uh, I believe their opponent is either going to be um, Kansas State or Texas, depending on what happens uh, this weekend. But if TCU wins their last game and wins the Big 12 and they finish 13-0 with the conference championship, you they're, they're going to be in the playoffs. They're, there's not a team that's going to pass them. All right, because the committee puts a lot of weight into conference championships. So if TCU wins their last two games, they're in. Now, if they lose one of those last two games, then it becomes very interesting because if they lose their final regular season game but win the Big 12 with one loss, they're still very much in the conversation. But if they win their last game of the regular season and lose the Big 12 championship, you can probably kiss them goodbye as well. LSU is interesting because they have two losses right now, okay? Um, But if they were to win their last game and then go to Atlanta and beat Georgia in the SEC championship, you'd have a two-loss SEC champion that would have beaten uh, the number one team in the country uh, to do that. So uh, I would certainly think that LSU would grab one of those four spots, okay? And then you'd have two SEC teams in there. And then number six, Southern California, USC is in a pretty good spot. They're ten and one. Uh, I, I can see them certainly winning the Pac-12, uh, winning their last couple of games, and winning the Pac-12. So that would give them, you know, an eleven and one record with a conference championship, or twelve and one rather with a conference championship. And then you'd have to, you know, the, the you'd have to hope that Ohio State beats Michigan. Um, because if Ohio State loses, I do think there's potential. They have a couple of signature wins over Notre Dame and Penn State. Um, the committee might be prone to to considering Ohio State. Uh, I don't think they would, but it's far more clear that if Michigan loses that game, Michigan's out. So USC's rooting for Ohio State to pummel Michigan, and they're also rooting for TCU Uh, to lose the Big 12 championship game. So uh, if both of those things happen, then USC uh, potentially slides up into that three or four spot with a 12-1 and record in a conference championship. So, um, you know, there's a lot that can happen these next few weeks. Um, But I I think your your, your playoff teams are looking like it's going to be four of the top six that currently sit right now between Georgia, Ohio State, Michigan, TCU, LSU, and USC. I think um, the only other team I think reasonably could enter the conversation is Clemson because they have a chance to win a conference championship with one loss on their record. So uh, it was an ugly one, but I still think um, the committee would be at least willing to give Clemson a shot if a bunch of other stuff hit the fan in front of them. So uh, crazy week in college football coming at us. Uh, some big, big games. 
and uh, that'll take us into next week's rankings where uh, we'll be getting closer to the final set of rankings and uh, we'll have obviously a much better picture after this week's games to see where things lie and we will check back in next week to go over the week 13 college football playoff rankings. But we'll move over to the National Hockey League and do a standings update here in the NHL. Of course, just like the NFL, it's been a couple of weeks since we've checked back in on these, so they have changed a little bit. We'll start off in the Eastern Conference, the Metropolitan Division. The hottest team in the NHL right now is the New Jersey Devils. They are 16-3, and and they have won 13 games in a row, which is uh, tied for their franchise mark for the longest winning streak in franchise history. I mean, the Devils uh, are hotter than a fox in a forest fire right now, and they do not have the best roster or anywhere near that in the Eastern Conference. So I don't think anybody would have predicted that they would be on a 13-game winning streak sitting at first place in the Metropolitan Division, but such is the case. They're 16-3. and Carolina Hurricanes, 10-5-4. and New York Islanders 12 and 8, New York Rangers 9 6 and 4. Uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins, they are 9 7 and 3. They've won 3 games in a row. Been fairly disappointing so far this year. Sidney Crosby was the NHL's first star of the week this past week. Philadelphia Flyers 7 8 and 4. One of the bigger surprises, the Washington Capitals, they're 7 10 and 3, all right? They have only won twice in their last 10 games. So they're not playing real good hockey at the moment. Then the Columbus Blue Jackets, they're 7-10-1. Over in the Atlantic Division, the Boston Bruins are the only team better than the New Jersey Devils so far in the regular season. They're 17-2. Just an incredible... They've won seven games in a row, which usually... Uh, would would be the longest winning streak uh, active, but uh, the Devils are at 13. But nonetheless, this is the first time uh, since 1929 that Boston won 13 of their first 15 games. They've now won 17 out of their first 19, which is just unbelievable. Uh, Captain Patrice Bergeron, he recorded his 1,000th career point the other night, and so uh, he has now hit the 1,000 point plateau. Uh, Boston looks, I mean, you look at New Jersey and it's just not sustainable. Neither one of these records are sustainable, but if you're placing money on who you have more confidence in to be sitting at the top of the division at the end of the year, my money is certainly on Boston. That team is really good. Uh, Not to say New Jersey's not. New Jersey's been playing really good, uh, but they aren't a better team than Boston. Boston is legit and they are certainly the betting favorite right now to win the Stanley Cup. The Toronto Maple Leafs are second at 10-5-5. Captain John Tavares, he scored his 400th career goal last week. Um, That's the good news. The bad news for the Leafs is that defenseman Morgan Riley was placed on long-term IR with a knee injury. And long-term IR in the NHL means that they must miss at least 10 games and 24 days. So if you play... More than 10 games in 24 days, you'll end up missing more than 10 games. But the minimum is 10 games and 24 days, not one or the other. Uh, Leafs, they'll be up near the top when it's all said and done. So too will Tampa Bay. They're third right now. The Lightning are 11-7-1. 
The Detroit Red Wings still uh, still putting up numbers. They're nine five and four. All right, they've won a couple in a row. Uh, still looking like they'll be hanging around a wild card spot. Uh, Florida Panthers nine eight and two. Uh, they you know started off not real great. Um, still not playing exceptional. They've only won four times in their last ten games. The Montreal Canadiens they're nine eight and one. They're a good, solid young team that'll probably be really legitimate here in about three years. And then uh, the Buffalo Sabres are seven and eleven. Ottawa Senators six eleven and one. Over in the Western Conference, the Central Division, my Dallas Stars are up top there at eleven five and three. Uh, they've been playing really good hockey this year. I have pleasantly surprised with how they've played uh you know coming into the year younger roster um not really sure you know new coach younger players and um you got a couple of veteran guys Ben Sagan Pavelski but uh, a lot of young players and you just didn't know how they were going to do under the the new coach Pete DeBoer and all they've done is score goals which was a massive problem last year uh, Dallas has 73 goals for, which is tied with Vegas for the most in the Western Conference, all right? And it's also tied for New Jersey for second most in the NHL behind Boston's 80. So Stars are putting up goals, which is ultimately goals lead to wins, and that's what the Stars have been doing. So I'm very pleasantly surprised with what Dallas is doing. They're first in the Central Colorado Avalanche, the defending Stanley Cup champion, they're second at 11-5-1. Winnipeg Jets are 11-5-1. This is another team that missed the playoffs last year that, uh, you know, had some things to prove this year. Not really a terrific roster, but they're playing real well. Uh, They've won seven out of their last ten. St. Louis Blues have risen from the dead. Uh, On uh, last episode a couple weeks ago, they were damn near the bottom of these standings update. Uh, but they're ten and eight now, fourth in the Central. Nashville Predators are nine, eight, and two. Minnesota Wild eight, eight and two. Chicago Blackhawks six, nine, and three. Uh, they've lost four in a row. Only won twice in their last ten. Uh, not not great. They did start out okay, but they have fallen off the wagon. And the Arizona Coyotes are nine, uh, six, nine, and two rather. Again, certainly not a playoff team, not anywhere close. Uh, Let me back up to Colorado real quick. Defenseman Kale McCarr, he became the fastest defenseman in NHL history to reach 200 career points while also becoming the first ever defenseman to reach that 200 career point plateau in fewer than 200 games. He did it in 195 games. We all know what Kale McCarr can do. He was the Conn Smythe Trophy winner from last year, Stanley Cup champion, uh, just an amazing young defenseman in the end, probably the best defenseman in the NHL, still super young, and uh, he has now set an NHL record. Over in the Pacific Division, the Vegas Golden Knights, they continue to win. They're 15-4-1. and uh, They've won seven out of their last ten, sitting up top there. They got a pretty good lead over second-place Los Angeles Kings, who are 11-8-2. Again, probably... Uh, another surprising team. I think the Kings were expected to be uh, above average this year, we'll say, but uh, may- maybe average. 
they have a lot of, of younger players as well, but they've all played really well. And then the Seattle Kraken, they're third in the Pacific at 10, 5, and 3, probably the biggest surprise in the NHL. Of course, last year they were the expansion team, first year in the league. Um, finished uh, towards the bottom of the Pacific Division, and here they are right uh, right in the mix, sitting third in the Pacific uh, after 18 games played. The Calgary Flames are 9-7-2. All right, uh, I would say slightly disappointing season for them thus far. Edmonton Oilers are 10-9. and nine. Again, they fall into that category with Calgary, team that advanced in the playoffs last year but hasn't done really much this year in the regular season. San Jose Sharks are 7-11-3. Uh, they've been down at the bottom all season. So, too, have the Vancouver Canucks at 6-10-3. And, and then the Anaheim Ducks are 5-13-1. They have lost uh, the last four games. They have the fewest wins in the NHL with five. Now, uh, after their first 16 games, they were 5-10-1, so... Uh, they haven't won uh, in almost a week, but after their first 16 games, the Ducks were 5-10-1, all five of their wins, which still stays true now after 19 games, all five of the Anaheim wins this year have come in either overtime or a shootout, okay? Uh, they've played almost a quarter of the season, they have only five wins, and all five of them have been in extra time, either OT or a shootout, so, uh, you know... That's that's going to be a problem. If they can't win in regulation, uh, they're they're not going to win very many games this year. Uh, you can't uh, you can't take every game to OT because uh, at that point it's a fifty fifty coin flip. But yeah, most of the teams have played either nineteen or twenty games. Uh, twenty uh, would be the the quarter mark of the season as the teams play. Uh, you know, eighty two games. So we're we're about a quarter of the way through the NHL season. Uh, I've seen some really good hockey, and uh, with the, with the teams, some teams playing uh, above their projections so far this year. It'll be interesting to see if they can keep those up, and uh, just how crazy the playoff race gets here in a few months when we're talking about all that. But uh, we'll check back in next episode and see where the standings fall then. But we'll move over to the NBA, do a standings update here. Uh, in the NBA, starting off in the Eastern Conference, the Boston Celtics are 13-4. and four. All right, They've been playing really well. They've won nine out of their last ten. The Milwaukee Bucks are 12-4. and four. The Cleveland Cavaliers are 11-6. They've won their last three in a row. Indiana Pacers, the hottest team uh, in the Eastern Conference at the moment. They've won five games in a row. They're up to 10-6. and six. Uh, Washington Wizards are ten and seven, and the Atlanta Hawks are also ten and seven. Uh, those are your top six teams. The seventh team is the Toronto Raptors at nine and eight. The New York Knicks are nine and nine. The Philadelphia 76ers are ninth in the East at eight and eight. Now they got some bad news. Their uh, all-star guard, Tyrese Maxey, he's expected to miss three to four weeks with a small fracture in his left foot. So that's a big blow to that Philadelphia lineup. Uh, they're playing pretty well. They've won six out of their last ten. Then you have the Brooklyn Nets uh, in 10th place in the Eastern Conference. They're 8-9, and nine, and they've won two games in a row to get there. So uh, prior to that, they were 6-9. and nine. 
just uh, not great considering they have Kevin Durant. You know, Kyrie Irving was suspended for five games, but he's back. Uh, Ben Simmons actually put together a decent game the other night with 22 points, which, you know, for him is, you know, if Ben Simmons plays well, uh, it's it's kind of an anomaly. Uh, I've never seen somebody so overpaid to do so little, but that is Ben Simmons. Uh, the Nets, though, they're a mess. Uh, they're technically in that 10th spot, which would get them into the play-in tournament. Uh, again, we're super early in the season, so it's kind of far away, but a lot of, a lot of stuff can happen. But uh, compared to what the Nets' payroll is against other teams that are in front of them, uh, that's kind of a joke. Chicago Bulls are 7-10. Miami Heat, they have lost four in a row. They're now 7-11. and The Orlando Magic are 5-13. The Charlotte Hornets, uh, they are 3-14. And And then the Detroit Pistons have finally made it down to the last in the Eastern Conference. They are 3-15. They've lost seven in a row. And uh, they are trying to enter the Victor Wembanyama sweepstakes. And they are uh, having great success at losing so far this year in order to make that happen. Over in the Western Conference... The Utah Jazz are first at 12 and 7. The Phoenix Suns are 10 and 6, and so too are the Denver Nuggets. They are also 10 and 6. Los Angeles Clippers are 11 and 7. They've won 3 in a row. The Sacramento Kings, they are 9 and 6. They've won 6 games in a row, 8 out of their last 10. So they're playing some really good basketball. The New Orleans Pelicans are 10 and 7. Seventh place in the West, the Memphis Grizzlies at 10-7, and seven, and uh, they got some horrid news the other day when it was announced that their all-star, Ja Morant, one of the best players in all of the league, he is going to be out indefinitely with a grade one left ankle sprain. Now, uh, I assume that is the worst uh, ankle sprain to have, or type would be grade one, because they said he's out indefinitely. They did not quantify the time that he's going to be out, so... Uh, We're looking at could be two or three weeks or it could be six or eight weeks. We don't really know, but either way, uh, the Grizzlies kind of go as John Morant uh, goes. Desmond Bain has been playing really well this year. He's going to have to pick up uh, the slack left by Morant's absence, but uh, the Grizzlies, I think, will be around at the end of the season. Uh, They just have to get through this period of time without Morant. Uh, Portland Trailblazers, they are 8th in the West at 10-7. and seven. They've lost three in a row. And then my Dallas Mavericks sitting at ninth in the West at 9-7. and seven. Uh, It's a little disappointing, if I'm being honest with you. Uh, it seems as though the Mavericks play uh, one really good game and then take the next couple off and squeak by with a win and then lose the next one and then play really good and then take a night off but still win, and then lose the next game. Like, that's kind of how their season has been. And they have the MVP frontrunner right now, Luka Doncic, who's averaging over 30 points a game. There's absolutely zero excuse for this Mavericks team to only be two games over 500, sitting in ninth place in the West. Um, So I'm curious to see if they can turn it around, but uh, that has been highly disappointing thus far for a Dallas Mavericks team that – reached the Western Conference Finals last year uh, and only got better with the addition of Christian Wood, who's, who's, again, played really well in about half the games and has been highly mediocre in the other half. And if 
Christian Wood's going to be mediocre, the Mavericks will be mediocre because he uh, is the key piece that was missing in that playoff run last year. Minnesota Timberwolves have climbed up to 9-8 and eight by winning their last four games. They're in 10th place. The 11th place team in the Western Conference is the Golden State Warriors. Now, I would say this. They're probably the second most disappointing team behind the Lakers, and then Mavericks would be third so far. So Warriors are 8-10. and 10. Uh, They are... They can't win on the road. Uh, Warriors are 1-9 and nine so far on the road. So if it's away from the Chase Center, the Warriors have lost. That's basically how their season has gone. You know, they still have Steph, Clay, and Draymond. No excuses for that team to be 8-10, and 10, but uh, my goodness. The Oklahoma City Thunder are 12th at 7-10. and 10. The Los Angeles Lakers, they're 13th in the Western Conference. They have been the biggest disappointment so far this entire season. They're 5-10, and 10, and they've won three games in a row to get to that 5-10. and 10. So they started out at 2-10. and 10. That is just absolutely horrendous. They have the best player in the game in LeBron James to go with Anthony Davis and Russell Westbrook. Something about that three just does not work, and uh, they would be wise to move on at some point this year from at least one of them. Uh, and I'll give you a hint, it won't be LeBron. So Take your pick between A.D. or Westbrook. Uh, but that team is just a dumpster fire. San Antonio Spurs are 6-12 and 12 after losing five in a row here lately. And then last place in the Western Conference is the Houston Rockets at 3-14. and 14. It looks like so far that uh, Houston and Detroit will be, uh, along with maybe Charlotte and Orlando, those four teams will be duking it out for the uh, Victor Wembanyama sweepstakes. So, uh, but we are very young in this NBA season. Teams have played between 15 uh, to 18 games, so we're still very early. Even uh, fewer games played than the NHL's season. So, uh, still a lot of basketball left to be played, and we'll certainly keep you up to date as we go along. But we'll move on to our segment called Around the Island. That's where we do some quick news topics from across the various sports. It's uh, a lot of info to bring to you, mainly from Major League Baseball. So we'll we'll end with that. We'll start off in the National Football League. Uh, only thing to bring to you from the NFL. I found this graphic on NFL attendance so far this year, uh, fan attendance, and uh, it listed the top 10 teams by average home attendance so far this year. And I'll count down from 10 to 1. Number 10, the Buffalo Bills, averaging 70,770 fans per week. Number 9, Carolina Panthers, 71,467. I would not have guessed that they would be in the top 10, especially with how bad they've been. Uh, but there they are at number 9. Number eight, San Francisco 49ers, 71,646. Number seven, the Los Angeles Rams, 72,957. Number six, the Kansas City Chiefs, 73,511. Now, I don't know what the uh, capacity for Arrowhead Stadium is, but uh, you know, I figured Kansas City would be a little higher. I'm sure that is probably around the capacity, though. So uh, Kansas City's sixth. Number five, Green Bay Packers, 74,008. 
Number four, the New York Giants, 76,337. Number three, the Denver Broncos, 76,625. Again, they fall into that category with Carolina. How the hell is their fan attendance in the top ten, top three, when they have scored the fewest points in the NFL and look like complete garbage on a weekly basis? I, I just I don't understand that. Number two is the New York Jets at 80,198. And then number one, an average fan attendance so far this year, is my Dallas Cowboys, 93,388. Right? We all know AT&T Stadium uh, is one of the bigger ones, and the Cowboys fill it up every week. Now, I did find this interesting that both the New York Giants and the New York Jets play uh, They play at MetLife Stadium, both of them, which is in East Rutherford, New Jersey. Um, but the Jets average almost 4,000 fans more than the Giants do per week, which I thought was interesting. And then on the flip side of that, Los Angeles Rams, they sit there at 7th in average NFL attendance. They share SoFi Stadium with the Los Angeles Chargers, who are nowhere to be found on this list. So uh, I just thought that both of those facts were interesting. And again, just the graphic as a whole, in case you were wondering who has uh, the highest NFL uh, fan attendance uh, in the league. I just uh, wanted to throw that in there. We'll zip over real quick to the NBA a couple episodes ago, maybe three uh, now, but certainly two episodes ago probably, um, I talked about the Brooklyn Nets. They were, you know, they had uh, fired Steve Nash as their a mutual uh, part ways there for both Nash and, and the Nets as their head coach. And uh, they were talking about hiring Ime Udoka away from the Boston Celtics. But, uh, you know, right after I had talked about that uh, on uh, the podcast a couple weeks, uh, a couple podcasts ago, the Nets came out and said that they have named their interim head coach, Jacques Vaughn, their new head coach, and they're just removing that interim tag. Now, the Brooklyn Nets said that this was done for multiple reasons, one of which was said to be related to the Kyrie Irving drama off the court that he was suspended five games for. Uh, either way, the Nets are just a mess right now. We just talked about. Um, their record is six and nine, I think it was, and uh, they, you know, they're they're just a, a highly disappointing team right now compared to where they should be or where their payroll puts them in uh, in terms of you know one of the better rosters in the NBA, and uh, yeah, I just the Nets are are a mess. But the the point of that was to tell you that their interim head coach Jacques Vaughn is now their. Um, permanent head coach, at least for the rest of this year. But we'll move over to Major League Baseball, and there's an absolute ton to get into this week. Uh, we'll start off, we are fully in the off season. It is uh, MLB hot stove season, so we've got some trades, some free agent signings to, to go over. We'll start off with a few trades. Uh, my Texas Rangers, they have acquired starting pitcher Jake Odorizzi and cash considerations from the Atlanta Braves in exchange for pitcher Colby Allard. Now, the Braves, they acquired Odorizzi at the trade deadline this past year from Houston. Um, played okay for Atlanta. This is a good trade for Texas. Uh, Odorizzi's not flashy, but he's a good, stable pitcher uh, for a middle-of-the-rotation guy. And uh, I think it's it's going to work out. He'll probably end up being the third uh, 
third or fourth starter in that rotation, depending on what else the Rangers do this year. So, but I'm I'm for it. Uh, the Seattle Mariners they made a couple of trades. The first one they went out and they acquired outfielder Teoscar Hernandez from the Toronto Blue Jays in exchange for relief pitcher Eric Swanson and uh, minor league pitcher Adam Mako. Now. The Mariners added Teoscar Hernandez, who's capable of hitting uh, 25 to 30 home runs for him in that lineup uh, with that's full of, of home run hitters. That's a great get for the Mariners. It crowds their outfield. Um, it's, it, you know, for them, it's, it's not good that they had to trade Eric Swanson. He was a big part of their bullpen in their playoff run this year, but uh, I think they're, they're wanting to beef up the offense even more so they can take care of Houston next year in the playoffs. And then uh, because the outfield's so crowded in Seattle, they went and traded outfielder Kyle Lewis to the Arizona Diamondbacks in exchange for uh, minor league outfielder Cooper Hummel. The Los Angeles Angels, they acquired third baseman Gio Urshela from the Minnesota Twins in exchange for a minor league class A prospect. So that's a uh, potentially a low-risk, high-reward signing there for the Angels, right? Uh, Urshela's not... uh, not really a great player, but he's certainly above average, I would say, maybe round average. Uh, but he's capable of hitting over 20 home runs himself, and all they gave up was a Class A prospect. Some free agent signings to get into. San Diego Padres, they re-signed their closer, Robert Suarez. Five years, $46 million. That's some serious cash for a relief pitcher who's not even their closer. He's the setup guy, the eighth-inning guy. Uh, but he played so well at the end of the year and in the playoffs that uh, the Padres really didn't have a choice. They they get him, Suarez, and Josh Hader in the ninth. That's probably the best 8-9 uh, pitching duo in Major League Baseball. The Houston Astros, they re-signed uh, relief pitcher Rafael Montero, three years, $34.5 million. He's in that setup role too, Ryan Presley's um, their closer. He, too, is also a free agent that they've yet to re-sign, but uh, Montero gets three years uh, over uh, 11 mil per season. Los Angeles Angels, I mentioned they traded for Gio Urshela. They went out and they signed pitcher Tyler Anderson, three years, $39 million. Uh, Anderson was on the Dodgers last year. He rejected their one-year qualifying offer. That's a good signing for the Angels who get to to pair him in the rotation with uh, Shohei Otani, uh, Noah Syndergaard. Uh, New York Yankees, they re-signed Anthony Rizzo to two years, $34 million, uh, with a club option for the third year. That buyout in the third year is $6 million. So I know the Padres were looking at Anthony Rizzo to fill their first base spot, but the Yankees ended up giving him a little more and re-signing him. The Texas Rangers, they re-signed starting pitcher Martin Perez on his one-year qualifying offer of $19.6 million. Uh, based on the season that Perez had last year, he led the majors in ERA for uh, through the All-Star break, so for the first half of the year. Uh, to get him at $19 million, that's pretty good. And I don't think that the Rangers are done yet. I think the Rangers are major players for either Carlos Rodon or Jacob deGrom. So stay tuned on that. I've heard reports on on both of them looking at Texas. And then the San Francisco Giants, they've re-signed outfielder Jock Peterson. He accepted his one-year qualifying offer of $19.6 million as well. Uh, Major League Baseball awards were handed out. 
All right, we'll start off um, with the Silver Slugger Awards. Of course, this is for um, exceptional batting in each league. We'll start off in the National League. Your National League Silver Slugger Awards, you have um, at catcher, JT Real Muto, the Philadelphia Phillies. First base, Paul Goldschmidt, St. Louis Cardinals. Second base, Jeff McNeil, New York Mets. Shortstop, Trey Turner, Los Angeles Dodgers. Third base, Nolan Arenado, St. Louis Cardinals. Outfield, you have Kyle Schwarber from the Phillies, Mookie Betts from the Dodgers, and Juan Soto from the San Diego Padres. Those are the guys that finished with the highest batting average at each position. Your designated hitter, Silver Slugger in the NL, Josh Bell, and your utility player in the NL is uh, Brendan Drury, also from the Padres. So the Padres had three Silver Slugger awards in the National League. And the American League Silver Slugger Award winners, catcher Alejandro Kirk, Toronto Blue Jays, first base Nathaniel Lowe, Texas Rangers, second base Jose Altuve, Houston Astros, shortstop Xander Bogarts, Boston Red Sox, third base Jose Ramirez, Cleveland Guardians, uh, outfield, you have uh, Julio Rodriguez from the Seattle Mariners, Aaron Judge from the New York Yankees, Mike Trout from the Los Angeles Angels, designated hitter in the American League, Jordan Alvarez, Houston Astros, and utility man Luis Arise from the Minnesota Twins, who actually won the American League batting title with an average of, I think, 316 this year. So those are your Silver Slugger Award winners in the American League. And then the um, big-time MLB awards that were handed out. Your Rookie of the Year in the National League was Michael Harris II from the Atlanta Braves. He had a terrific rookie season. He actually beat out fellow Braves rookie Spencer Strider in that vote. In the American League, your Rookie of the Year, this was a landslide. It was Julio Rodriguez of the Seattle Mariners. Uh, not even close. Uh, the dude was electric. He dominated the home run derby and really made a name for himself. Ended up signing a massive extension about halfway through the year uh, to keep him in Seattle for the next uh, decade plus. Your managers of the year. In the National League, your manager of the year is Buck Showalter of the New York Mets. Uh, he did a terrific job. This is actually the fourth time that Buck Showalter's won this award with his fourth different team, so that's pretty impressive. I think he's only one of only two or three managers to win this award four times. In the American League, your manager of the year was Terry Francona of the Cleveland Guardians. My personal thought was it was going to be Scott Cervais from Seattle, but uh, the Guardians also made the playoffs, uh, and they advanced to the second round as well. So uh, Terry Francona gets the nod there as manager of the year in the AL. Your Cy Young Award winners in the National League, it was Sandy Alcantara from the Florida Marlins. He's the first Florida Marlins pitcher to ever win the Cy Young. He was terrific. Uh, he had more complete games than anybody in Major League Baseball. I think he ended up with about nine complete games uh, this year, which is just insane. In the American League, your Cy Young winner was Justin Verlander, the Houston Astros. This was the third time that Verlander has won the uh, Cy Young Award, and uh, he had some pretty good competition in this category. Both Dylan Cease and Alec Manoa had terrific seasons, but 
Uh, Verlander coming off of Tommy John surgery, uh, led the AL and ERA, and uh, had 20 wins. Just, um, you know, really a terrific year for Verlander. And then your MVP awards. Your National League MVP was Paul Goldschmidt of the St. Louis Cardinals. He had he hit over three. I think his average was over three twenty. Uh, had thirty something home runs, over one hundred and fifteen RBIs. The guy just was a monster at the plate this year. Certainly helped carry the Cardinals team. His uh, infield mate in St. Louis, Nolan Arenado, was also a nominee. But uh, Goldschmidt's numbers were just a tad better. So Paul Goldschmidt is your National League MVP. And then your American League MVP, in my opinion, it wasn't even close. It was Aaron Judge. Uh, he beat out Shohei Otani and Jordan Alvarez. Now, a lot of people were saying Otani should have won just because his numbers this year, both hitting and pitching, were better than they were last year when he won the AL MVP. But the point is, his most valuable player is on a, a team that actually is valuable. The Astros were one of the first American League teams to be eliminated from playoff contention. So it's hard to pick an MVP on a bad team, but not to say Otani's not an amazing player because he is, but I mean, we all saw what Aaron Judge did. He set the American League record for home runs in a year with 63, I think he ended up 62. And uh, you know, had he hit over 300, had 62 home runs, drove in over 100 runs like uh, helped the Yankees get to the ALCS and uh, really was not a question in my mind who the AL MVP was, and the voters agreed because Judge is your American League MVP. Now, uh, a couple other notes just to finish up Major League Baseball. The Kansas City Royals, their owner, John Sherman, he announced that the team is planning to leave Kauffman Stadium at some point in the next couple years, and they are going to be building a $2 billion ballpark village right there in downtown Kansas City. The 3D mock-up that I've seen looks pretty cool, and it looks very similar to the ballpark village that's in St. Louis outside of Bush Stadium and also the Texas Live uh, ballpark village type area next to Globe Life Field here in Arlington, Texas. So uh, basically what the ballpark village and Texas Live are, it's a bunch of uh, bars and restaurants and hotels and uh, just gathering areas and hangout places there right next to the ballpark, uh, all, you know, right there, concerts, that kind of stuff. It's pretty cool. If you haven't seen Texas Live or Ballpark Village in St. Louis, look them up and, and you can see what I'm talking about. But uh, that's pretty cool for Kansas City. Uh, finally, the Royals dumping some money uh, into that stadium. They've been playing at Kauffman Stadium for a long time. It's not one of the nicer stadiums, so I can certainly see why they're wanting to get out of there. And then speaking of Arlington, Texas, I just mentioned Ballpark uh, Village, the Texas Live thing here in Arlington. Speaking of Arlington, Globe Life Field has been awarded the 2024 Major League Baseball All-Star Game. All right, Commissioner Rob Manfred announced that next year, uh, well, 2024's Midsummer Classic will be coming to Globe Life Field in Arlington. It'll take place on July 16th of 2024. And uh, uh, Commissioner Manfred came out and said that Globe Life Field was a terrific host for the 2020 World Series during the COVID-shortened 2020 pandemic season. So uh, this will be the second All-Star game ever played in Arlington. 
The first one was back in 1995, all right? So as a uh, Texas Rangers fan and uh, somebody that lives in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, I'm certainly stoked that uh, the All-Star Game will be coming here. Uh, I may go check out some of the festivities there when, when that stuff gets down here in a couple years. Um, Major League Baseball also announced that uh, 10 exhibition games are going to be played between the World Baseball Classic national teams and Major League Baseball teams, uh, both in the Cactus and the Grapefruit Leagues uh, across March 8th and March 9th of this year. Now, this is simply in preparation for the World Baseball Classic, which is going to be played this upcoming spring right before the Major League Baseball season officially kicks off. So, uh, ML right before the MLB season, I believe World Baseball Classic takes place in March. So it's basically going to be two days worth of spring training games between World Baseball Classic national teams and uh, the MLB teams of the players left over that aren't on World Baseball Classic rosters. Now, speaking of those rosters, I'm not going to get into them yet. We'll we'll preview the World Baseball Classic once we get to uh, February March. Uh, and talk about some of the rosters that are there. Team USA looks really good. This is probably the best roster they've ever had for a World Baseball Classic. Uh, pretty stoked for that. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll take a look and uh, get all that previewed once we get a little closer. But that is going to wrap up the 98th episode of the Sports Island Podcast. Again, very busy. It is Thanksgiving week, so there will be plenty of stuff on uh, NFL football all day on Thanksgiving. A lot of terrific college football games this week uh, on Friday and Saturday. Um, some statements should be made this week uh, before we get to the conference championship games. And, um, of course, National Hockey League, NBA, they're both playing. So a lot of good stuff to watch this week. And uh, I know I will certainly be tuned in. And I know uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you're a sports fan. So I know you will be as well. Uh, but in the meantime, have a great Thanksgiving week. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving to you and yours, and uh, we'll check back in on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Sports Island Podcast. Be sure and find it on Facebook, at Sports Island Podcast. I'm Rick Mitchell, and I'll catch you next time right here on the Sports Island Podcast, which is available everywhere you listen to podcasts.